0: Welcome to The Bulwark Podcast. It is Friday, which means that we are joined uh, by my colleague, Bill Crystal. Bill, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it very, very much.
1: Good to be with you. And I'm, of course, uh, I'm at home doing this because I'm recovering from actually going to the office yesterday, going out for lunch, wearing respectable looking clothes. It was-
0: no shoes. Oh, you wore shoes. You I wore shoes actual instead shoes.
1: of sneakers, you know, dress slacks or whatever the right term for that is, casual, but, you know, kind of real pants instead of cargo pants and uh, a collared shirt. It was kind of amazing, really. And I, I, so I'm exhausted now. So I'm just kind of sitting at home recovering from the effort.
0: You know, I I saw your tweet that you were going out, and mm-hmm. uh, l- last week when I was on vacation, I, my wife and I went to the re- uh, restaurant for the very first time, which was really an extraordinary experience. But I have to say that I still have not done what you did yesterday, which is actually to wear real shoes. Um, I'm still <laughs> I know I really I realized that you know I, I went for months without wearing long pants, and now I've gone for months without wearing what I think we can call hard pants. I mean, you know, between jeans and and soft pants, but. I, I have worn real pants. I have worn collared shirts, but I haven't actually worn real shoes yet.
1: You can do it, Charlie. You know, you got to, it's been, you know, it's like all oh, these why? things. You got to work up, to, you got to work it up, work up to it. And, you know, little takes uh, gradual steps, but I have confidence that at some point we will see Charlie Sykes once again in nice shoes, you know, do pants, just- maybe a. Coat. Well, you wear a coat and tie on TV, so you're, you you do that more than but I do. Actually, but
0: that's so. all. That's only waste up, though. Yeah, <laughs> that's no, the right. that's the yeah. thing. Okay.
1: We don't want to. go into that too much. But that's 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 also. It's also. It is funny that we. So I went to lunch with Sarah. yesterday, Sarah Longwell, and uh, we covered a bunch of. You know, went over a bunch of things. It is. I mean, one does get, for all the virtues of phone calls, obviously, and Zoom, and we've all been functioning that way for over a year. And I think we've done a lot of good stuff, so I'm not at all uh, down on that. But it, it is something about just being with someone in person. You can just get much more have much somehow more uh, real and richer discussion, I think of things, and that it's, it's always a little artificial somehow when hey, it's hey like, you
0: know what I'll take your word for it because I haven't, haven't <laughs> gone that gone that far before we uh, we dive into uh, the news of the day and, and the the major issues we want to talk about, uh, we have to acknowledge that today is a big anniversary one I don't know whether you remember this one year ago today, this happened. one minute and is there a way we can do something like that uh by injection inside or or almost a cleaning because you see it gets on the lungs and it does a tremendous number of the lungs so it'd be interesting to check that so that you're gonna have to use medical doctors with but it sounds it sounds interesting to me Yeah. One year. Memories. Memories. Just one year ago today. uh, Politico writes about this today, uh, this morning, saying it was a watershed moment soon to become iconic in the annals of presidential briefings. It arguably changed the course of political history. Some ex-Trump aides say they don't even think about that day as the wildest they experience um, with a conceit that there were simply too many others. But for those there, it was instantly shocking, even by Trump's standards, It quickly came to symbolize the chaotic essence of his presidency and his handling of the pandemic. Twelve months later, with the pandemic still lingering in the U.S. death toll nearing 570,000, it still does. You know, part of me listens to that and goes, did that really happen? Did we really experience that?
1: It's it's uh, we did and we experienced a pandemic. We experienced, unfortunately, what, I don't know how many deaths we were at then, but I think tens of a few tens of thousands, mm-hmm. maybe. And uh, what were we then saying? Trump was saying, "Well, we're going to, of course, keep it under two hundred thousand deaths, and that's going to be a huge victory." He was trying to set a bar high, as he thought that he could he successfully, you know, uh, claim success uh, by, by by being under. And we're at fi- over 550,000 deaths so i mean we paid a huge price i i come always you know with it's funny and it's pathetic and it's politically um you know important to remember this but i guess one has to really come back to the fundamental fact that we mishandled this pandemic badly and um we paid a real price now thank god we seem to be coming out of it and i think We have an administration, Trump did one or two things fairly well in terms of getting the vaccine going. That was mostly the private sector and and so forth, and and sort of established scientific uh, research. Um, uh, But now we're going to finally get out of it, and uh, I think... With a vaccine maybe. and uh, and to t- better testing, maybe that would be nice, and uh, and that will be a, it'll be good to good to put this in the rearview mirror. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, I, I I just have two quick takes on this. You know, number one that, that after that moment, which was complete sheer lunacy about something, it was a matter of life and death when seventy million Americans still voted to give yeah. him another four years. Can't get my still can't get my head around that. I will I will confess. And secondly. You know, all the medical professionals who were in that room or in his orbit, the fact that they sort of sat there and went, yeah, the president of the United States is just spewing just, uh, you know, batshit crazy stuff. But, you know, let's not actually say anything. So I, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of Deborah Burks, but here he, here's her rationalization of her silence afterwards when she was asked about that moment. Everybody kind of remembers that video. You can have that, that mental image of the mm-hmm. president talking about injecting bleach and light into people's bodies. And then sort of the camera pans over and she's sitting there and you just can only imagine what she was thinking. Th- this is what she says about that.
2: Those of you who have served in the military know that there are discussions you have in private um, with your commanding officers and there's discussions you had in public. Frankly, I didn't know how to handle that episode. I still think about it every day. Um, When I was spoken to, I said not a treatment but I don't know. I guess some people thought I should run up on stage um, and interrupt this dialogue that was going on between the DHS scientist and the
1: president. But I was just not trained in my my years of training to to react that way.
0: Yeah, ev- evidently not. Um, I don't know. I, I I think at some point I understand the the, the Fauci and bargain was you you wanted to stay in the room. You wanted to be be a voice of reason. But you know, half a million Americans dead afterwards, and you do wonder whether or not that was a moment for people to stand up and say, "Hey, people, uh, we have a real problem here, and and and, and this is crazy stuff, and uh, I'm not going to be part of this." What do no, you think? very
1: much Brooks? so. And I, I just want to. I mean, our friend Olivia Troy was yeah. in, in in the mm-hmm. White House then, working on the task force with Deborah Burks and and Tony Fauci, from both of whom I think she retains respect, great respect. But she quit. You know, and she and not only quit, she came out and said it how, and explained how bad it was, and how incredibly politicized, and foolish, and stupid, and personally, you know, dominated by Trump's prejudices, the decision making was. And she said, "You can't vote for Trump for re-election." For me, that I always come back to the the, the re-election question. If you and and you mentioned seventy four million Americans, that worries and depresses me. What about the conservative elites and everything they knew who couldn't bring themselves to say in October of twenty twenty we defended certain things we don't apologize for that the judges are good blah 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 but we and they supported him for re-election and that for, yeah. uh, it's, it's, one thing, it's one thing to have rationalized things over four years. It's one thing to have stayed in the government, as 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 Dr. Burke said. And I'm not sure she's entirely. You know, she's certainly not wrong that there were people in there doing good things and trying to prevent worse things from happening. And we're glad that some of them stayed in and stopped some worse things from happening at different stages. But um, but, to, 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 but it's but they were the ones who were complicit in pretending that it was good enough that we should give them another four years. I, that I just can't quite get beyond.
0: You know I know that you and I want to talk about david brooks's column in The New York Times today, where he argues that the Republican Party is actually getting worse that they're on this uh this rapid downward trajectory that things are even worse after Trump for a variety of reasons and i you know it's interesting when I read that, and again we'll talk about it in a, in a minute um i This is something that i've been thinking about is that if there was any illusion that that conservatives or the right or the republican party would would uh you know turn its back on this would would shake off the the crazy um it's obviously been wrong and it's not just and this is the important thing it's not just that there's they stay enthralled to donald trump it's that there's a there's a momentum toward um, I, I guess more illiberalism, more extremism, more authoritarianism, uh, more white grievance policy. That's genuinely alarming, but it's genuinely real. And, and while we're on this issue of, of the, 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 pep, the pandemic and the response to it, here's an example. And I, I look, you know, this, this breaks my heart. I mean, if people think that I take any enjoyment from this whatsoever, uh, no. Um, you know, Senator Ron Johnson, who, you know, continues to baffle me by uh, his uh, his tinfoil uh crazy conspiracy theories, he went on uh, one of the conservative talk shows in Wisconsin yesterday. Uh the host is Vicky McKenna, and I wanna comment on that in a moment. And he, he's he's going off on vac uh, vaccinations. I mean, the one thing right now, at this moment, um, what will determine The fate of the of the pandemic is our success in convincing Americans to get the vaccine. Uh, You know, we are close to the finish line, but we're not there and we're not going to get there if we don't have millions of people take the vaccine. And here is the senior United States senator from Wisconsin um, being all outraged about the push to vaccinate all Americans. So let's let's play this. This is Senator Ron Johnson on a local uh, concert right wing radio show here in my home state of Wisconsin.
2: Squeeze every inefficiency out of developing vaccine, but uh, you know, from my standpoint, uh, because it's not a fully approved vaccine, um, I think we probably should have limited the distribution to it to to the real, to the vulnerable, uh, to people that really aren't you know to the very young. Uh, I see no reason to be pushing vaccines on people, and I, I certainly am going to vigorously resist any kind of government use or uh, imposing of vaccine passports but they'll probably get the private sector to do it for government and, and that could be a very freedom robbing uh step and people need to understand these things um so again you're talking about climate change is the next step i, I don't think they're going to let go of covid anytime soon you know what, what is the point if the, the of course the, the science tells us that vaccines are 95 percent effective so if you have a vaccine Quite honestly, what do you care if, if your neighbor has one or not? I mean, what what is it to you? You you've got a vaccine, and it's, you know, science is tell, telling you it's very very effective. So, what, why is this big push to make sure everybody gets a vaccine, and and it, to the point where you better impose it? You're going to shame people. You're going to you're going to force them to carry a card to prove that they've been vaccinated so they can participate in society. Um, I, I'm I'm getting highly suspicious of what's happening here. It's about control, and it's about power. And if you crave control and power, you will do anything to keep control and power. And our big mistake was giving them access to it in the first place. Senator Ron Johnson, I hope you have a wonderful Earth. Oh, my God.
0: I mean, you know. First of all, I mean, this This is really tinfoil hat anti-vaxxerism for the United States Senator at this moment to be raising questions about the vaccine, to be uh, suggesting that it is not necessary. And then you have this paranoid, it's all about control. It's all, I mean, that's the thing that's so disturbing about it is the way these folks go down these rabbit holes of paranoia. So, I mean, that's just not, that's just not, crackpot stuff on a local talk show. I mean, that is just grotesquely irresponsible from somebody in Johnson's position.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, it's really terrible because it's, you know, some people aren't going to get the vaccine as a result, I suppose, and they can get sick or they can get others sick uh, who haven't yet been vaccinated. Um, It's really depressing to hear that. And I guess I come back though. Yeah. And I think it's good to focus on the leaders and the elites. We've had this discussion before, but I'll say it again. There's 74 million people voted for Trump. Tens of millions of people are vaccine vaccine doubters, I guess, or, and so forth. And don't want to believe the, (laughs) you know, I need the public health uh, experts who, who, uh, whether they're in government or not. But again, it would be different if people they respected the senators they listened to the president they used to listen to the former president they used to they still listen to said look get the vaccine don't mess around with this we can get it's much better for the country the faster more people get vaccinated i mean it would make some difference i think so i always come back to the irresponsibility of the elites partly because i don't know what to do about the public you know what i mean it's so complicated social media and cult, the culture and you know there are millions of things going on right that are hard to get your arms around but the one thing we can do is have responsible people tell the truth to their constituents, to the people who were listening to them. And on those lines, and this is not at all comparable, I, uh, and this really is heartbreaking in a sense, because George W. Bush is a heck of a lot better public servant than Ron Johnson. You and I spent how many, how yeah. many thousands of man hours defending him on, on wow. various forms of media over the years, and correctly so in many cases. But then he's quoted. Was it yesterday? I think that he sort of cavalierly, sort of said, uh, "Well, you know, I, I voted. I wrote in Condoleezza Rice in 2020. So if that was sort of that was clever, and really, I mean, really, well, that's just irresponsible. And fine, it's 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 going. It's a it's a, it's retrospective, so it doesn't matter, I guess, in a sense. And uh, maybe his one vote wouldn't have mattered in Texas and all that. But what is the signal that sends going forward that we don't I have, don't have to be serious about the actual real choices? We face in American politics between a responsible president and a totally reckless and irresponsible one. And incidentally, then let's get to get to our next topic. I think you want to talk about the Mm -hmm. David Brooks column. It gives you no standing to say to the left look, you've got to discipline your irresponsible people, because George W. Bush, who's a serious person, is saying, I'm I'm not going to bother disciplining the people on my side. I'm not going to actually vote against for someone who could defeat Donald Trump. So I I was really, I don't know, that got to me more than I expected, because I respect Bush. You know, Ron Johnson, I've written off a long time ago, and it it made me worry. It just, if people aren't going to stand up against extremes of both sides, which means at times embracing the moderates on the other side, then we're in deep trouble.
0: No, I think we are in deep trouble. Well, at least he didn't do what John Boehner did and actually uh, vote for for Trump, uh, even though he knows how unfit for office he was. Just one comment on 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 Ron Johnson because I mentioned that you know he went on Vicky McKenna's show and you you could hear her with her you know paranoid uh, stylings about about control. Um, you know, people have asked me what happened to Ron Johnson. And, and I have, I have a, a lot of guilt about this. I really do. Because I mean, I obviously I go way back with Ron Johnson. Uh, he was a regular uh, guest on my, on my program. Uh, we, we, we talked very, very frequently. And of course we don't anymore. And I think, unfortunately, if you really want to know what's going on with Ron Johnson, uh, the the fact that, that I think that, that people like Vicky McKenna are now his go-to, uh, uh right-wing media sources you know for example she's the kind of uh conservative talk show host who used to always tweet out gateway pundit stuff i mean way out there in the in the woolly fever swamps and now i think that johnson is you know is tracking with that kind of right-wing media rather than shall we say the more well i I suppose, self-flattering uh more (laughs) more reasonable so i feel feel a little bit guilty that you know that I'm not there anymore to be able to say, "Hey, you really don't want to go crazy," because the the Vicky McKennas of the world are urging him on. Now, speaking of which, let's talk about David Brooks, all right? Yeah, because I I, I think he's I think he's right here, and I think it's uh it's it's kind of a challenge. And let me just read it, it a little bit from this. Those of us who had hoped America would calm down when we no longer had Donald Trump spewing poison from the Oval Office have been sadly disabused. There are increasing signs the Trumpian base is radicalizing. And by the way, radicalizing without Trump. My Republican friends report vicious divisions in their churches and families. Republican politicians who don't toe the Trump line are speaking of death threats and menacing verbal attacks. It is as if the Trump base felt some security when their man was at the top, and now that's gone. Maybe Trump was the restraining force. Now, before people like roll their eyes at this, there may be something to this. What's happening now, Brooks writes, can only be called a venomous panic attack. Since the election, large swaths of the Trumpian right have decided America is facing a crisis like never before, and they are the small army of warriors fighting with Alamo-level desperation to ensure the survival of the country as they conceive it. And he quotes some polls saying that, that the on the right, they're just not interested in policy anymore. Um, how pessimistic they are. Uh, the level of Republican pessimism is off the charts. A February Economist YouGov poll asked Americans which statement is closest to their view. Quote, it's a big, beautiful world, mostly full of good people, and we must find a way to embrace each other and not allow ourselves to become isolated. That's one. Or our lives are threatened by terrorist criminals and illegal immigrants, and our priority should be to protect ourselves. Over 75% of Biden voters chose a big, beautiful world. Two thirds of Trump voters chose our lives are threatened. This level of catastrophism, nearly despair, has fed into an amped-up warrior mentality. So you know they're, bas- they're they're crashing through this deep pessimism. He writes, um, you know, with this deep pessimism, the hyper populist wing of the GOP seems to be crashing through the floor of philosophic liberalism. Into an abyss of authoritarian impulsiveness, and frankly, I think I think that he's right, and I think that you see that if you uh, if you follow right wing media, uh, including Fox News, that they're they're moving into areas that have been that we have not seen in prominence on the right for decades. So, Bill, what what is your take on David Brooks's uh, argument? I think he's right. I think you've been saying it, frankly,
1: and Sarah Longwell and Tim Miller and a lot of us have been saying it for for a while. And we saw it quickly after January 6th. That was the moment where one thought, you know, okay, maybe finally there's a coming to grips with what's been unleashed and a retreat from it and an attempt to restore some boundaries. And there hasn't been basically. Actually, it's interesting. Uh, um, someone commenting on Brooks on online, on I saw said, "You know, Brooks then says the conservative. He says the the the, uh, the elite liberal elites or elites on the left. I think he says, you know, have put up barriers against the illiberalism of the left. Elites on the right need to do the same thing." And someone, Jonathan Chait, they commented that, "Well, actually, the Never Trumpers are the only uh, conservative elites, if you want to call them that, who have tried to." of the barriers, I'm not sure we're the only ones, but I think, unfortunately, we haven't been joined by many others. I do think they're being too nice to the left, honestly, though, which has not been resolute most of the left elites and putting up these barriers. I mean, the New York Times editorial page. I mean, there f- hasn't been right. That's the, that's the big story there. I mean, Brooks writes there, which is good, and, and 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 Brett Stevens and so forth. But you know, every time there's a mini revolt by the woke uh, junior New York Times staffers, there's a meltdown, and people do get fired unjustly. And of course, uh, we've seen recent. Uh, so uh, there's more to talk about here in terms of the the left and the right. But I so we but whatever one's judgment of the Different degrees of guilt, you might say, of elites on the left and elites on the right. I think David's column is important in reminding us that we need to. And this needs to be stood up to, and it can't just be wished away. And this is where everyone from politicians to former elected officials to, you know, people who have some influence through their different outlets need need to speak up. And it is urgent. Sarah Long will have that wonderful piece in the bulwark. Was it yesterday? And you know. People need to remember this is liberal democracy that's at stake that we're talking about. It's not just like, gee, it's kind of unfortunate if the government spends too much or too little or, you know, I mean, and and that sense of urgency and importance, you don't see it quite. They see more of it is the good news, I would say. Among among some people, there's a little bit of a coalescing on the center left and the center right in defense of liberal democracy, but but not quite enough yet.
0: No, I, I agree with with several points you make there, in, including the fact that the the left does need to do a better job of policing some of its extremism. I mean the the you know kind of the, the totalitarian racial ideology that you see at some of these elite private schools has really been disturbing. I mean, I was reading that essay uh, from the teacher from uh, I think it was with Grace uh, School in in New York, where mm-hmm. he went through the the uh, politically incorrect attitudes that students were told they could not have, you know, the, the, adi- the the, the, ideas they could not express. And as I was reading it, I was thinking the people who put this in place have never read 1984. They don't actually understand what the concept of totalitarianism is. So yes, that is a, pr- that is a problem. And um, I, I think there's a reluctance on the part of the left to police this in part because they don't want to acknowledge that both sides have a problem. I mean, they have really dug themselves in. But what's happening on the right is is alarming. And I guess I I, I would also like to underline this point, that when you see people like Tucker Carlson openly embracing and articulating the racist replacement theory or uh, others who are uh, talking about you know the white genocide theory, that they're coming for white people. The only people who are the victims of racism are white people. Or David Rubin uh, saying things like uh, the left is about to pass anti-white legislation. This is a dangerous new stage. Uh, a lot of people on the left go, hey, no, you people on the right have always been racist. All Republicans have always been racist, always been bigoted. You've always been authoritarian. So – You know, this is nothing new. Well, it it is new. Um, And you and I have discussed this extensively. You know, those things have always been there, but they have been the recessive genes. And the right has always been much more diverse, much more varied than I think people on the left give them credit for. And what's happening now is the ugliest elements of the right are now moving into a position of much more prominence. And the fact that they're doing it post-Trump Really ought to be alarming because I, I I think that those people who thought the Trumpism was just a cult of personality, which it was, and that it had no and there was nothing there, and so as, as soon as he left, that it would all blow up, it would you know like smoke. Um, that's not true. Something really ugly has been tapped into, and it's it's coming into the light now.
1: No, I think that's that's really true and important. And I guess the way I'd put it, I've been thinking about it a lot myself. I mean, I misjudged certain things. I underestimated certain uh, things, leave aside left and right, just in America. So I'd say I was too had too sunny a view of policing in America, mm-hmm. of the behavior of, of police officers, of the ways in which their actions were reviewed. I didn't focus on police unions and so forth. Um, but it's one thing to be Slightly wrong. It's one thing to have a blind eye, wishful thinking, and so forth. That can be corrected by experience, in fact, and by argument. And in my case, I think, I hope it has been. But that's one thing. It's another thing to embrace, you know, as you say, as Tucker Carlson does, uh not just a white replacement theory, but to just defend a police officer who has killed someone, you know, unnecessarily and recklessly and and maliciously. And that, you know, that's just a whole different level of, and, and the degree to which the right has cascaded into an actual embrace of malevolence, as opposed to a bit of a blind eye against certain aspects of you know injustice and malevolence in our society that's a huge change and, and it, because then it becomes very hard to correct with argument and it becomes a kind of victim grievance uh passive aggressiveness which is what david's talking about and what we're seeing and it's really uh know it's very it is i i agree i mean people who don't see that things are more dangerous than we thought four or five months ago not less dangerous are not seeing things as they are on the right and in the Republican Party, honestly.
0: Yeah, on, on this issue of the police, I mean, it's one thing to give the police the benefit of the doubt and to sympathize with the challenges they face. It, it's another thing to look at the video of Derek Chauvin on on George Floyd's neck for nine minutes and say, yeah, that's I'm, I'm okay with that. I mean, that really becomes a celebration of cruelty for its own sake. It's, it's also a distortion of, of support for good policing. I mean, if, if you are an advocate of anything, then you would be, let's say I'm I'm a fan of, of the police or I'm a fan of the military. That doesn't mean therefore you need to celebrate war crimes, right? Or that you need to go out of your way to celebrate uh, the bad behavior of a bad cop. I and mean, that's where I think it's morphed into something genuinely ugly. So what we saw earlier this week, we do have some people who are defending Chauvin, including uh, one of the uh, Republican can- leading Republican candidate for governor in, in Virginia, which is remarkable. Um, a lot of the rest of it is anti-anti-chauvinism, which is kind of the the new version of anti-anti-Trumpism. We're not going to defend uh, Chauvin, but we're going to attack all of his critics. But that is an ugly moment. Um However, could we just mention something since we're on this issue of police shooting? Because I do think that we are at an important moment. I mean, this week was so this that verdict was so crucial because the alternative, I think, would have been so damaging to the country. You know, had you know what it would have said about the jury system, the criminal justice system. um, I think it would have taken some of these divisions and really just ripped them much more dramatically. I do think that we are edging. Uh, As a society, the majority of Americans toward holding police more accountable. I mean, are you optimistic on that? I'm I'm looking at this Washington Post poll showing that two-thirds of Americans think the police ought to be held more accountable. I mean, I think we're headed in the right direction there, at least a little bit.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm (laughs) – You know, I'm both optimistic, and then, of course, the next time you look up, the the left is 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 jumping, rushing to judgment on the actions of the police officer, in, I think it's Columbus, Ohio, and that's where I wanted to go on
0: that, yeah, and
1: misrepresenting what happened. David French, you and I discussed this before the show. has a wonderful column on this, saying, you know, we can be extremely tough on Chauvin and think that was a just verdict and be pleased by it, and and uh, and then we don't have to rush to judgment when someone else seems to have shot uh, a young woman who was trying to stab another one and maybe it was the only recourse was to use uh, his weapon and, he's, and there'll be a review there should be a review whenever any, obviously whenever this force uh, got a shot let alone someone is killed but but you know the rush to judgment there is pretty har- pretty horrifying and now the good news is there's been a bit of a backlash against it the bad news is serious people who have been in a senior office valerie jarrett president obama was one of his closest counselors in the white house for eight years just pops off about it knowing n- nothing maybe she's embarrassed maybe she's going to r- correct herself but you know so on one end, you look at this and you think oh my god the right is terrible the left is you know, not, not great at all either uh and we're going to just go down a terrible kind of spiral but then i think maybe you maybe we'll muddle <coughs> our way maybe we can reject both of those and the public seems a little more sensible that washington post poll is striking people want Policing, obviously, they don't want to defund the police. They want to improve the police, but they don't want police racism or 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 cruelty. But they don't want to say that most policemen are racist or that necessarily that we can't have you know strong and and sound policing without uh, you know that's not a part of systemic racism or anything. So I I guess I do feel that I don't know. It's it's a very weird time, right? Where it, it seems foolish to be too optimistic, but I would say on both policing and other issues as well, I can sort of see some. Green shoots of, yeah. of of sense, good sense, coming up beneath the screaming, you know, or, or or despite the screaming on both sides.
0: No, I I I think you're right about that. Um, and I, I I said this yesterday during the podcast with Kim Whaley, though, um, just to underline the importance of make sure you get it right. I mean, don't rush to judgment because credibility matters in the long run. And you know what you're seeing on the right was not only the embrace of of chauvin but then immediately wanting to shift the the focus onto people who make unfair charges against the police and and you you mentioned david french's piece which is which is really excellent. uh can I just re- read a little bit of it he says i i could feel an, I could fill an entire newsletter with strange and dangerous reactions from prominent right wing voices after the chauvin verdict the pathologies of right wing infotainment." or one reason why I have uh, so little patience for most of the rights, relentless criticism of the mainstream media. Somehow in all of their rage and fury, they've created a competing media ecosystem. That's actually worse than the institutions they hate. They take the log, I'm sorry, take the log out of your own eye. But then over in Ohio, Many of the biggest public figures and news outlets in America got busy reminding us exactly why so many on the right feel such deep frustration. They reminded us why it's often accurate to critique left-wing media narratives, especially when it's obvious that those narratives will force people to deny or to ignore the witness of their eyes just as thoroughly as the far right ignored the witness of their own eyes in the Chauvin case. Then he talks about the police shooting of this 15-year old girl. And it was tragic and deeply, deeply sad, but it's also nothing like the police murder of George Floyd. And uh, again, the evidence of your own eyes, this young woman, this girl had a knife in her hand and she was about to stab, perhaps kill another person when she was shot. That That is not at all the same circumstances as George Floyd. And you kind of wonder whether, I mean, but 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 trying to express this kind of nuance is a dangerous place to be in American society right now. I mean that it's you you will be attacked uh from from both sides but it's important I think it is you point out it is crucial to make these distinctions it's crucial to not rush to judgment and 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 it's crucial to make these distinctions if you want to be credible uh and and lead real reform in the future
1: and neither you know the 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 grotesque aspects of the right don't excuse the left's uh, lying or or illiberal impulses and and, and just you know, false statements and the false statements of the left don't excuse people on the right you know saying oh my god look at the media and then believing the kind of craziness you mentioned earlier from the ron johnson talk show and so forth so we just need to get out of excusing either side's illiberalism and and lying and uh um demagoguery and just you know, instead of excusing each side by the errors of the other side, we need to not excuse e- the errors of either side.
0: Well, that's right. I mean, you know, what aboutism is uh, is a hell of a drug, and it's hard it's hard to break away from that. So we're headed up close. I don't have the exact date in front of me. Um, the Joe Biden one hundred day anniversary. Of course, you know, everybody then writes the report cards of of Joe Biden. Um, you have any preliminary grades you'd like to hand out?
1: So I guess he's giving a speech. I mean, on, I don't know if it's literally the 100th day, but I think it's I pretty think close. It yeah. And I think it's next week. It's Wednesday. So we yeah. are pretty close to it. I give him good grades, uh, very good grades, really, all things considered. There are just a little bit more being careful not to throw around, I don't know, systemic racism. And that's a complicated phrase. And I'm not saying in every instance it couldn't, it couldn't be defended. But I think in general, it conveys a misunderstanding of the current challenges in America and puts off people who otherwise could be, you know, good-hearted, uh, would join in good-hearted efforts to improve race relations and improve injustices that, are, that are, do exist. So I just, I, a tad more um, standing up to the left by the Biden administration, maybe that's a little bit hard to ask for, given the incredibly charged circumstances we're in. But on the core policies i'm pretty hopeful in both domestic and foreign policy some things i disagree with afghanistan pull out and stuff maybe we we'll rethink that but um when you when you really do the cost benefit analysis but a general sense uh, yeah i think i think more encouraged about the biden administration than i expected to be 100 days in more depressed about the republican party and to a large degree the conservative movement i gotta say 100 days in Mixed views of what's happening on the left, a little more reaction by good liberals against illiberalism, but also the power of woke illiberalism is, is pretty great as well.
0: I agree with most of that. I, I guess I was I was thinking through what I would if I had to write or or uh, if I had to write about this, which of course I do it at at some point. And I I continue to just be so relieved at the contrast between Joe Biden and Donald right. Trump. I mean, the the difference in their character is so dramatic, and I, and the, and the fact that that Joe Biden takes his role uh, so seriously, the fact that he is a man of 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 deep uh, empathy, um, I think makes a tremendous difference, and. I think we had a piece in the bulwark this week about uh, the president and his historians. The fact that we have a president now who d- is deeply interested in American history, the history of the presidency, um, deeply interested in, um, in in restoring the soul of America. So I, I'm I'm, I'm I, I continue to be very very optimistic about that and very very grateful. On the other hand, I I, I do have this nagging concern. About the failure of the Biden centrist project, um, where I think that there was some hope that there would be um, more outreach to, I think, voters who and voters and, and elected officials who I, I think wanted to see a a, bi, a, a bipartisan approach. Now, I, I'm not making bipartisanship a fetish. It's just that. You no, know, despite all this talk about Biden Republicans, there is literally there are no Biden Republicans in elective office, and you have a lot of good faith Republicans, and I think there are good faith Republicans, and I think we know their, their names who would like to work with this administration, but not one of them has voted for a major piece of Biden legislation, and I think that's unfortunate, and I and I think that there is a there is this this despite the incredibly narrow majorities the. At least so far, and, th- and this could change. Uh, there, there seems to be a you know let's let's put the pedal to the metal um, on all of our uh, agenda. Now, look, I, I don't know what's going to happen with the uh, with the stimulus package. Uh, the president has said that he's going to negotiate it, but I I think there is something unfortunate. Um, not just because bipartisanship is a fetish, but there's something unfortunate. Mm-hmm. If these things are pushed through on a strictly party line vote, because I do think that there's a moment here for center-right, center-left cooperation. And I'm not getting the vibes and the signals from the Biden administration that I would have hoped, but I'm still very, very grateful that he's in office as opposed to the former guy. No, I think that's what I mean. I would
1: just add – you know, just to emphasize your point, it's not just, you know, some of us, would, it's generally nicer to have bipartisan legislation. I think it's yeah, urgent no. now yes. to some success in bipartisanship in Congress as an example for state legislatures, an example for the country, as an example for citizens. And, you know, I, there's a, a piece today, I, I don't remember where I read it. Uh, there are three or four kind of behind the scenes negotiations going on in Congress that are at different stages of, 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 of likelihood, I guess, and none of them is terribly likely, perhaps, on bipartisan legislation. You could imagine bipartisan deals on infrastructure, immigration, there seems to be a little more going on behind the scenes, some people realize. But one aspect that was mentioned is policing, and given how fraught that issue has been, and given how central it's become in the last week or two, obviously, and, and over the last months and years, um, if Tim Scott and Karen Bass, Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina and, and and Representative Karen Bass from California, if they could, um, I, I guess they're talking and I think there's a, they're not that far apart. There's some issues on qualified immunity. I just can't believe those should be, those need to be showstoppers. It would be a big deal for this country if you had a genuine bipartisan deal, not with all Republicans or all Democrats, maybe not even with most Republicans, but with a significant number of Republicans and, and the Biden administration and most Democrats on something like policing to modify some current uh, rules and laws that govern you know the question of police accountability and, and so forth um i mean that would be a big deal so i i yeah i'm very much with you the the, the bipartisanship is treated as kind of a nice thing to have but I, I think there's a kind of urgency in getting some of it on some of these issues immigration would be another one where i would really bend over backwards if i you know give up more than i normally would of my personal policy preferences have a real, to real bipartisan achievement legislation signed by the president of the United States.
0: Well, I agree. Bill, thanks for, uh, for joining me on the podcast. I appreciate it very much. My pleasure, Charlie. Have a good weekend
1: and, you know, try on those shoes sometime. You know, you wore them, you wore them for like 50 years or something like that. You could do it again.
0: You know, I'm I'm just kind of nervous to think of what, what it would feel like, to be quite honest. I mean, I've been sitting in the closet for, for years. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, well, thank you all for listening to uh, today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back on Monday, and we will do this all over again. Have a great weekend.